Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. So recently, uh, Julie and I, we've come to the end of summer. Usually every August, Julie and I visit um, her family who live in Washington, Illinois. It's about a 10-hour drive um, from here. And on the way to Washington, Illinois, there is, if we want to, we can take a detour and we can actually visit the college where Julie and I met. It's called Lincoln Christian University. When we met, though, actually, it's called Lincoln Christian College. This is a picture of us there. Um, and, you know, when, whenever you visit places that were important to you in your life, and I spent four years on this campus. It was a Christian college, middle of a cornfield. I spent a lot of time there um, with a few people that would never leave on weekends. I was one of those people. Um, and so I spent a lot of time there. I have a lot of memories there. And so when I went there, I was just overwhelmed with just so many just things that, that, that happened while, during my season when I was there. You know, first of all, Julie and I met on that campus. We didn't know each other really the first year, um, but the second year we got to know each other as we were working as tour guides. Um, if you can imagine me and Julie both being tour guides, that's actually how we met. Um, I have a lot of memories of the fun that me and my roommates had. Um, we all lived on a floor called B2, and we did a lot of things together because most of us tended to stay during the weekends, and when you're there during the weekends, you get very bored, so you invent things. Um, and one time, one of the things about Illinois is it gets very windy and very snowy, so you get these huge snow drifts. Um, and then in addition to to that, whenever the snowplow would come through, they would pile all the snow into one mound in the middle of the parking lot, and it was usually about, you know, this high or something like that. And one, on one of those occasions, at the same time, we found a shopping cart on campus just abandoned. So we're like, okay, let's put these things together. And so what we invented was cartapult. And the way the cartapult went was basically you put one person in the shopping cart, you put three guys pushing the shopping cart, and then you pushed it into the snow mound and then measured how far you flew. It was a very exciting time in my life. Um, I have pictures from that somewhere. I'll hopefully find those for a future sermon. Um, but one of the things that, but the thing that, you know, there was a lot of fun. I saw my friend Chris and we relived some of that and Julie and I talked about how we met, but there's something that just really struck me, and it was what God really did in 2011 through 2012, my final year when I was at uh, Lincoln Christian University. And I was reminded of it because of this. This is a painting um, that was part of a series of paintings that were all over one of the walls on our campus. And it was, the word reconciliation was part of a longer sentence. Each, each painting had a different word on it. But this is a, something that somebody had put up to mark and to remember what God had done during 2011 through 2012, and it's still there on campus today. And that year, I had been living in Japan the summer before the summer of 2011. Some of you had um, supported me so that I could go live in Japan and do an internship there. I worked at the church, and it was actually working with that church that made me want to be a pastor. Um, And while I was there, one of the things that God did inside of me is that for the first time in my life, I suddenly felt like I wanted to tell everybody I knew about Jesus. Um, But there's a language barrier, and I couldn't do much. But when I returned back to the United States and back to college, you know, I went from basically from Japan, had a few days off and was right back at college. When I got back to college, I had this sort of evangelistic hustle. All of a sudden, I wanted everybody I knew to know about Jesus. And so I was president of the student body at that time, and I felt like God had given me a vision um, for where he wanted us as a campus to 
be at the end of the year, and it included this phrase that we would be catalysts for reconciliation. And what that, that comes from 1 Corinthians. But in the end, what we wanted is we were believing that God had 49 people, which is the number of letters in that vision, that 49 people that God wanted to, of our friends and family, that God wanted to have commit their lives to him. Um, so we were praying for, or we were hoping that 49 people and our friends and family would come to know Jesus over the course of the year. So by the end of that year, we get to spring or we get to May of that year. And over the course of that year, we had actually all those letters were white, like the ones over on the edge. I think those were the last letters that were left. All those letters were white. And over the course of the year, as somebody, one of our friends or family, or even somebody on our campus came to know Jesus, we allowed somebody to go fill in and paint in one of those letters. And so we saw letters filled in over the course of the year. And by the end of the year, we had somewhere between, I think about 42 people had committed um, to actually become Christians over the course of the year, including people from our own campus at a Christian college. And we didn't know how to baptize them, so we actually got a, got a horse trough on loan from some like farmer place, put it on stage, and we baptized people in a horse trough. And it was a, an amazing year. And actually, people are still talking about what God did in 2011 through 2012, even on campus today. But the thing that stuck with me from that experience was not the conversions that we saw. It was not the baptisms and baptizing people in a horse trough on stage. The thing that stuck with me the thing that shaped the course of my life and ministry was something quieter, something that happened in between that vision that God had given me in August and seeing the fulfillment of that vision or close to the fulfillment of that vision in May. God had done something in my life and God had showed me something that was going to mark my life and ministry. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Today we're starting a series called Spirit, or not starting, we're continuing a series called Spirit-Filled Church. And last week Chuck introduced the series, and what this series is really about is we're going to be walking through the first eight to nine chapters of Acts. Acts is 28 chapters long, and it's a story of when the church um, really got started through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to be looking at over the course of these, the next 12 weeks is 12 marks of what does it look like when the Holy Spirit fills the church with God's power and presence. We're going to talk about generosity. We're going to talk about how the church grows. We're going to talk about how things change when, things are, when, when the Spirit fills the church. And we're going to start, though, by talking about something today. The mark that comes before all of the other marks. The one that sets the stage for everything help that else that happens in the book of Acts. The thing that happened quietly in the background of that year at Lincoln Christian University that shaped the course of my life. And we're going to be in two different texts today, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if you've got a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you. It's a New International Version. Open up to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can find this online. You can just search it, or you can go to Bible Gateway, or download an app called Version. Acts is a is a a fifth book of the New Testament. It comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And we're going to start today in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, what some people call the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled. Everyone say filled. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, or some translations say languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Let's pray. Lord, this this four verses have shaped the imagination of the church for the past 2,000 years. This is the beginning of our story. The reason we're sitting here today is because something happened on that day of Pentecost that changed the course of of human history as Acts says, turned the world upside down. We are connected to this event, an event in a very intimate way. 
Lord, I know that when we open the word of God, you, Jesus, come and speak to us through your Holy Spirit. No matter where we are, some of us are here this morning. Um, uh, just We have no idea why we came in the rain this morning, but we came this morning hoping for something. Some of us have been going to church our whole life and think that there's nothing new that we could learn. Some of us are brand new to faith and just eating it up. But Lord, I pray no matter where we are, that you would speak to us from your word this morning, which is living and active, not old and dead, but it is living and active this morning. So we open the word of God, believing you have a word for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in Acts again, chapter 2, 1 through 4, I want to go back um, to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which Chuck preached on last week when he introduced this series. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus makes this promise that the church is going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them, and it's going to be a power for witnessing. And it says this, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is kind of like the thesis statement of the book of Acts. It's a summary of the whole book, that if you actually read through Acts, you're going to see the church move forward in this way. First, their witnesses in Jerusalem, which we see in Acts 2. Then you see them in witnesses in all the surrounding areas of Judea, which is the country around um, Jerusalem. Then you see them move into Samaria, which is a bordering area. And then you see, that begin them, you see them begin to move to the ends of the earth with the missionary journeys of Paul and others. And so first, though, you have this promise that they're going to receive power. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, you see the fulfillment of that promise, or at least the beginning of the fulfillment, where they actually receive power. And just to, some of you are timeline people, and you have a hard time like understanding, you know, how many days are going on here. I just created this for us today. But Jesus rose from the dead. You know, we celebrate that as Easter now, but then there are 40 days where he's, at the beginning of Acts, it says that he's walking around, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, he's having Bible studies with them, he's explaining to them, here's what, what happened, here's, let me help you make sense of the resurrection, let me make, help you make sense of how the Old Testament was looking forward to this, um, for, you know, or not just the Old Testament, the Bible was looking forward to this up until this moment, and then he ascends to heaven, which we saw last week, where Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, he disappears from their sight, and now they're on their own, it seems. But for 10 days, they pray, and then after that, we see Pentecost happen. And Pentecost is a Jewish festival that they were commanded to celebrate every single year. People came from all over the world to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And at this festival is what we see happen in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where the Spirit is poured out upon the church. And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we get a description of the moment when the church became a Spirit-filled church. We get a description of the moment when the church became a spirit-filled church. And there's a lot we could say about this. In fact, we could preach multiple sermons on this text. But we just want to say just a few things. And I want to kind of sum those up with one idea. Is that one of the things you see in this text is that nobody left wondering from this experience that I actually received the spirit. Nobody left this experience thinking, now did something actually happen when we were sitting in that room? Did we actually receive something? Did Jesus actually fulfill his promise to us? It was an audio, visual, immersive experience that used all kinds of their senses in which God filled them with his Holy Spirit, as it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. The first thing you see is you see this incredible sound of something like a rushing or a violent wind. It's not necessarily that they felt wind, but it was the sound or the experience of a mighty or violent or rushing wind. That makes me think whenever Julie and I are driving to Illinois, we pass this motorcycle church on the side of the road, and it's called a rushing wind church. It's a great church name, but it's already taken, so we're going to keep being Bellevue Christian. Um, but one of the things that I love about this passage that I think is interesting is why the sound of a wind? 
One of the, one of the things that you, you note if you, if you study Greek is that the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word in Greek. It's the word pneuma. And so the sound of a mighty wind is, is already calling you and inviting you to see this as associated with the spirit of God being poured out on the people. And I don't know what that would have sound like, but if anybody's ever seen the 90s movie Twister, which holds up, it's still great. Um, but if you've ever seen the 90s movie Twister, um, when you have those moments where they're down and they're hiding out from tornadoes and you just hear that violent sound, that's something like I imagine what this must have been like in their memories. And so there's the sound of a rushing wind, this incredible sound. But in addition to that, there's this intense visual where it says they were looking around and all of a sudden there was something like a flame on top of each other's heads. And not just any flame, it says tongues of fire. If you've grown up in the church, that's like one of the weirdest phrases that you like, if you're a kid and you hear that phrase for the first time, you're like, what in the world is going on with that? Like, not only is it flames, it's shaped like a tongue. Creepiest thing in the world, it feels like. But that's what's going on here. And you're wondering, what is the significance? First, you have this rushing wind. Then you have this intense visual of a flame, you know, looking around at each other's heads. There's a flame shaped like a tongue on each other's heads. And there's a couple things that might signify. Um, scholars and commentators argue about what it could mean, but a lot of them come to say, when you look at the Old Testament, fire is a symbol for God's presence among the people. So there's a good chance that's what that fire is symbolizing, that God is present with them in a special way, in the same way he was present with their ancestors. But what about the tongue? Why is there something shaped like a tongue on their head? And what you see is, as you see next, maybe that's showing about what, what God's power and what God's spirit is going to enable them to do. Because immediately after this, not only do you see this incredible sound, this intense visual, but you see an immediate aftermath in the life, lives of the believers. Right after this moment, the first thing that they do is not being like, wow, that was a powerful worship experience. Well, I'm going to sit with that one for a while. I feel really good about my faith. The first thing that they did when they received the Spirit of God is they began speaking. It says in other tongues here, but a lot of translations say in other languages. And the idea there is that there were people all, from all over the world who were in Jerusalem who spoke a variety of different languages. And the first thing the Spirit enabled the church to do was begin to speak the good news of what Jesus had done to all the nations that had come now into this place of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, but that's what you see happening. There's this immediate aftermath in the lives of the believers as the Spirit enables them to do exactly what Jesus said they were going to do, to be witnesses to the whole world about what he had done through them. In Acts chapter 2 verse 4, he sums it up saying, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what it was like the first time the church experienced this. This is how Luke describes it. This is how people were remembering it. This is what this whole series is about, the Spirit-filled church. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the aftermath of this scene in the life of the church. We're going to look at all the different marks of the kinds of things the church was doing. But before we move forward, I actually want us to step backward. Before we move forward into the other 11 marks of what we see the the church doing when it's filled with the Spirit, I want to move backward to one mark that happened quietly in the background that set up this scene that often we skip in our excitement to get to this exciting part where the Spirit is filling the church. And this is what I want to call the first mark of the Spirit-filled church and the mark that sets the stage for the rest. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn now to Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 14 should be just the page right before that. And so again, what's happening is that Jesus has given them this promise. And then in Acts 2, they receive the power, the fulfillment of that promise. But let's look at what happens in between. There's a couple of different things, but I want us to focus in on one thing. It says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. 
Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Everyone say prayer. Prayer. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The first mark of the Spirit-filled church is one that you see all over the book of Acts, starting right here with this scene. The first mark is that it's a praying church. If you're the kind of person who keeps the list, this is number one in 12 things. Not today. We're going to get through them week by week. But this is the first mark of the Spirit-filled church is that it's a praying church. Another way that we could say it is that prayer is the link between the promise and the power. Prayer is the link between the promise and the power. If we want to experience power like the early church had, we have to pray like the early church prayed. If we want to experience the power that we see in the book of Acts, if we want to see those same kind of stories told by our church over the next decade, we have to learn what does it look like to pray like they prayed, because prayer is the link between the promise and the power. John Stott, one of the most famous preachers of the 20th century, especially the late 20th century, writes this when he's writing about this scene. He says, we learn, therefore, that God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. And what that means is this, is that you'd think that when Jesus promised to them, I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit, just wait, you'd think that they would just sit back and wait and do nothing about it. You'd think that that would be the response. But what they do instead is they see God's promises as a reason not to sit back on the couch and wait for something to happen, but to get down on their knees and actually begin to pray that God would fulfill the promises that he had just made to them 10 days before that. Their response to a promise is not to wait around and do nothing, but to wait around and pray and ask God to fulfill his promise. He says, on the contrary, it is only these promises which give us the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. When God promises something in scripture, it is not meant to just sit there and be like, thank you, God, that's nice. I'm going to wait around until you fulfill that. God's promises are meant to bring us to our knees and to ask him saying, Lord, here is what you've said. Now we're believing that you're going to fulfill your promise. It's coming before him and it's beginning to ask him to fulfill his promises and to do what he said he was going to do. And that's exactly what you see the church do here. And so if prayer is the link between the promise and the power, what does it look like to pray like the early church? What does it look like to pray like the early church? Um, In this passage, we get two descriptors of the prayer life of the early church. And I want to contrast those with two ways that we might describe how the church prays today. And we see them in chapter 1, verse 14. It says, they all joined together. They all joined together constantly in prayer. They all joined together constantly in prayer. So the first things that you notice about the prayer life of the church is, one, is that it was collective rather than divided. And two, it was constant rather than distracted. It was collective rather than divided and constant rather than distracted. And so I want to start with that first one, that the prayer of the early church was collective, whereas ours tends to be divided. The first thing, again, the church practiced when it came to prayer is they were praying together. The word behind the phrase joined together is a phrase that means more than just that they were physically present in the same room, kind of like we are now. It wasn't just that they were physically present with one another in prayer. It was that they were mentally present with one another in prayer as well. They were praying about the same things. It wasn't that they were just praying in the same space. They were actually praying about the same thing. They were coming before the Father with one mind. The phrase that you see here for joined together, you see throughout the book of Acts. And every single time you see it, it often says they were of one mind. They had unity about something. They were praying about something. They were doing something together. And again, it just wasn't that they were just in the same space. They were praying for the same kinds of things. They weren't just at home praying for their own little prayer request list and then coming together to do other things. Or they weren't just praying by themselves. They were praying with other people and they were praying about the same things. 
which is kind of foreign to where we are in our cultural moment. Um, As a culture, one of the ways that many people describe our culture is we've become one of the most individualistic societies known in human history. That most human societies throughout human history were collective, where people did things together, where people leaned into one another. But we've become a society where we do things on our own. We expect people to parent by themselves. We expect people to pay for things by themselves. We expect people to, to, to support just themselves. Everything's just you and yourself. And what's happened, though, is that little cultural current has worked its way into the life of the church. And so our prayer begins to become, become very individualistic. It becomes something that it's just me and God. It's just my request and God. And what ends up happening is if you've grown up in the church, I've been taught that one of the most important things is this phrase that's one of the strangest phrases ever if you're not growing up in church. Is one of the most important things to do is to practice something called quiet time. Anybody ever heard that phrase before, quiet time? You sound like a crazy person if you try to talk to a non-Christian about your quiet time. Um, because it sounds, it sounds pretty strange that you're practicing whatever is called quiet time, which is what quiet time is, is, it's meant to be, it's a phrase that we use as Christians to talk about this idea of the importance of being alone with God and prayer and Bible reading. And we see that in the life of Jesus, where Jesus would withdraw, he'd spend time with the Father, it was important, quiet time is a real thing, we should do it, it's great. But what ends up happening though is we make that the only thing that we do. We make quiet time the mark of spiritual maturity, where as long as you're praying by yourself, that's the one thing we need to be doing. The problem is, when you read the book of Acts, you don't see a lot of quiet time. You see tons of noisy time. You see lots of people coming together to pray about the same things to God loudly, coming before him with requests. And so it's not that quiet time and noisy time are against one another, but that they're both parts of the life of the church. But what's happened in our kinds of churches, not just our church, what has often happened in a church in our day is that we've started to elevate quiet time, alone time, just me and God time is the main thing we do, rather than including both us and others' time. I've started to notice that because I've been starting to spend time with Anglicans. Anybody know what an Anglican is? Right? I had to look it up on Wikipedia the first time. Anglicans, um, is, they're actually the ones who are supporting my seminary education. I go to this school called Trinity School for Ministry down the road from here. And one of the things I've noticed about Anglicans or Episcopalians is they put value on something called common prayer. That whereas I had grown up with this value on personal prayer, which is important, they place value on something called common prayer, where they pray together morning and evening and on Sundays, and they shoot for that. And as part of my time in seminary, I've actually had to go to morning and evening prayer with other people where we do something, we follow something called the Book of Common Prayer, where we confess sins together, where we worship God together, where we read scripture together, where we pray for the world, where we pray for our families together. And I've started to notice, where is this in the life of my own church? And I've started to see, though, that when you look at the book of Acts, that's more of what you see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you see in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, it says, the narrator says there are 120 people gathering together. That's about the size of, there's a little bit more people in this room. We have about 120 people gathered together in prayer over those 10 days. Um, So they weren't meeting in a church building like this. They were meeting probably in a small room, maybe the third floor of a Bellevue kind of house. Um, That's maybe the max amount of space they would have been gathering to pray during this season. And in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, we actually get a glimpse of the kinds of people that were there in prayer. And the first that we see is that the disciples were there. But it's no longer 12 disciples. It's actually just 11 disciples. Because Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus, has now abandoned Jesus and ultimately committed suicide. And they kind of tell that story in the rest of Acts chapter 1. And so now we're down to just 11 core disciples left, one of whom is also named Judas, who I've always felt very bad for. Because um, I feel like the other Judas, over the rest of his life, every time he introduced himself, he had to be like, I'm not that Judas. I'm a different Judas. Different Judas. 
you know, that, but feel like there are always like death threats out for him. I feel like he probably changed his name eventually. But there's now 11 disciples left. In addition to that, we see that there are women there. And the women are often mentioned throughout the Gospels. Luke especially makes reference to a number of women who follow Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, he names some of them by name. He says the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And this is just really intriguing because if you read a lot of ancient literature, women are rarely mentioned, especially by name. But it was the Christians who began to elevate the role of women. That often people think that Christianity is behind the times when it comes to the role of women. And that Christianity is the problem with everything when it comes to patriarchy. The reality is, is that Christianity was naming women by name, inviting them to be disciples right alongside the others in a time when nobody would have done that. Jesus in Christianity was ahead of the time when it came to the role of women in the life of the community. And I think that's an important corrective to the way we talk about Christianity today. And so not only were the women there, but we also see that his relatives were there as well. His mom, Mary, was there, and presumably his brothers, James, at the very least, was there as well. And if you remember in the Gospels, when Jesus' family is mentioned, they're mentioned as actually thinking that Jesus is crazy and out of his mind. But at this point, now post-resurrection, they've now come to believe and join the disciples as well. So they're part of that first 120-person church. It makes you wonder, what were they praying about when they were gathered together? What were they praying about? What was on their minds? One thing that I have a feeling they weren't doing is they weren't spending 55 minutes sharing prayer requests and then two minutes praying so we can get home before bedtime, which is often how my experience of prayer and others has gone is that we spend a ton of time talking instead of praying. And then by the time we finish talking, we're like, oh, shoot, we better pray. And then like we have time for one person to pray, and then we all finish up. I have a feeling what they were doing instead is they were probably, if anything, praying that God would fulfill his promises and pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. And I have a feeling that was on their minds over and over and over over the course of those 10 days. So the first thing, again, is that it was collective rather than divided. But the second thing that we see is that it was constant rather than distracted. It was constant rather than distracted. Um, they weren't just trying to get, squeeze prayer in three weeks from now using some kind of app to make sure all of our meetings you know, coordinate and we can finally find one day three years from now where we can actually pray. I have a feeling their prayer wasn't interrupted by notifications on their phone, but rather it's described as being constant, which again is far different from how our prayer lives have often become because of the distracted culture in which we live. I don't have to read much data to you to convince you that we're distracted as a culture, but I'm going to read some. Um, one is that we check our phones 80 times a day on average, um, and that's like a low estimate. The average adult spends four and a half hours a day consuming shows and movies. Um, I have to admit, I'm just as guilty. Uh, I watched the entirety of Stranger Things season two while down sick for three days recently. I still don't know what happened to Barb. Only some of you will get that joke. And then in total, we spend about nine hours um, and 22 minutes each day on screens, checking our, um, checking our phones every 12 minutes. And our attention span has dropped from 12 seconds to eight seconds between 2000 and 2013. Some of you might have missed that. Let me read that one again. Our attention span dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds between 2000. That was like my best joke ever. It's, it's over now. Um, so can you imagine again, just as the way the individualistic culture has worked its way into the church, the way distraction has worked its way into the church in your prayer life as well. How many of you have been praying before and, you know, you get a notification on your phone and you forget to return to prayer? Or how many of you have, have intended to start, a, a, you know, a rigorous morning prayer life where you're coming before the Lord, you're praying, but you stay up so late watching a show 
show that you're exhausted in the morning and you just have a minute to maybe squeeze out a prayer on your way to church or on your way to work or wherever it is that you're going. And so in the end, what happens is we have these very distracted prayer lives, mine included. Um, I've noticed lately, you know, especially over the past 10 years, as distraction has worked its way more and more into my own life, um, that, you know, I'll put on a worship album, but I'll spend like five minutes finding a worship album on Spotify, but I'm too cheap to pay for premium. So about 25 minutes in, I get a, I get a, like a commercial for Axe Body Spray. I don't know what it's trying to tell me. Um, and then, and then I'm, I'm praying and I'm trying to pray through these commercials. And then I get a notification on my phone or I get a text and then I check my text and then I check my email and then I start working. And then four, at 4 p.m. I notice I never came back to prayer and I only lasted about 15 minutes at most a lot of the times that I try to pray. And I have a feeling if you were to describe your own prayer life, and I've been asking a lot of you recently about your prayer lives, and I've heard it described in similar kinds of terms. So in the end, we have very distracted prayer lives, which is different than how you describe the, the, how the church is described as being constantly in prayer. Now, the feeling when the word constant is used, it's not just saying that they were thinking every second of every day they were praying, but it's used in the same way that maybe we, we would use it today, where if you describe somebody as constantly doing something, it means it's become the thing that marks their life, that every time you see them, every time you talk to them, it's the thing they're talking about, it's the thing they're doing. Some of us, for example, are constantly watching sports or reading about sports. It doesn't mean that we are, are doing it every second of every day, but it means first thing in the morning, you're checking ESPN for notifications. It means that during lunch, you're checking notifications again. When you get home, you're turning on Sports Center, and then at 7 p.m., you're watching some kind of game. And even though you're not doing that every second of every day, Day, you might be described as constantly doing that. When it comes to the prayer life of the early church, I think that's how this word is being used, that it's become the thing that marks their life, the thing that they're known for among the community is they were people who felt like they were constantly at prayer, probably morning and evening, maybe over lunchtime. They were meeting downtown Jerusalem. They were taking off a long lunch to go pray together or something like that. And one of the things that you see is that prayer is normal throughout the whole book of Acts, that in 28 of Acts, or in 28, Acts has 28 chapters, and prayer is mentioned in 20 of them, and even more than that throughout the book of Acts. That prayer is this pattern, this thing that the church is doing more than anything else throughout the book of Acts. In a book called Revival by Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher from the mid-20th century, he refers to constant prayer and the kind of prayer that you see the early church doing as pestering God. Everyone say pester. It's a great word. It's become, I wanted to describe my prayer life. It says, he says this, don't leave God alone. Pester him, as it were, with his own promise, which is what we just, just talked about, what the church is doing. Tell him what he has said he is going to do. Quote the scripture to him, and you know God delights to hear us doing it, as a father likes to see this element in his own child, who has obviously been listening to what his father has been saying. It pleases him. The child may be slightly impertinent or annoying. It does not matter. The father likes it in spite of that, because it means that you've been listening to him. Think about those of you with children where your children are like, but you said we were going to go somewhere. You said we were going to do this. You, made a, you promised. Your kids remember your promises so much better than you do. And God is a much better parent than us, but he invites us to come before him and to remind him of his promises, to remind him of what he said, to pester him, as it were, with his own promises. What if we began to be a church that prays like that? What if our church in a culture that's, that's you know, constantly distracted becomes a place that's known for constant prayer? What if the data that describes how many hours a day and how many times we check tech a day begins to describe our prayer lives instead? What if instead of checking our phones every 12 minutes, we're praying every 12 minutes? What if instead of spending four and a half hours a day consuming media, we spent even a quarter of that time praying? What if we binged on prayer? What if when somebody's asking you, what season did you binge recently? It's like, I prayed, you know, for about that length recently. What if that became the mark of our lives? 
There's a book that I can remember where I was when I first um, read it, or actually we heard it. It was an audio book. It's a book called The Cross and the Switchblade. Anybody heard of that book? So it's a book from the 1960s. Um, and it's a book that is pretty famous actually around here because of some of the ways that it affected Duquesne University. Um, but I listened to this book called The Cross and the Switchblade. Me and Julie listened to it on a road trip to Illinois. And it's the autobiographical account of David Wilkerson, who ended up founding an organization called Teen Challenge, which, helps, um, which originally just helped teens, but now helps adults get out of uh, heroin addiction and drug addiction in general. And he founded it in New York. But at the time when this book starts, he was just an ordinary pastor, I think in Pennsylvania. And he would come home every day and he just watched television to just recover from his day. You know, if he, had, if he was here today, he'd probably just watch Netflix. But God spoke to him through a news story, and he began to pray instead. And over the course of the next couple of years, it led him to New York to start this organization. And it started because he switched from constantly watching TV to constantly praying instead. My discipleship community this summer committed to spending, um, to having three worship nights, one worship night a month throughout the course of the summer. And if you would have told me that each of those was going to be an hour and a half to two hours, I would have told you that I was busy and I had something else to do. Um, but what we found is that when we went in and we would pray and we would worship, and a lot, some of you were there for these, that we would pray and that we would worship, and then an hour and a half or two hours would go by, and all of a sudden we'd realize we had been praying for two hours. At first, if you had told me that we were going to pray for that long, I would have not thought it was possible. But all of a sudden, we had prayed for two hours. I spent as, it's like when you watch something and you can't believe how many episodes you just watched of something. But I was experiencing that with prayer for one of the first times in my life, where we were really praying for long periods of time. And so when you look at the early church, though, Again, these are the words that you see describing them, that their prayer life was collective and constant rather than distracted and divided. Those are the descriptors of the prayer life for the early church. And when the church was praying like this, which it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they were gathered together in one place, and the idea there is that they were praying just as they had been in chapters 1, verses 12 through 14. The Spirit showed up. Now, my question for us, this is rhetorical, don't answer out loud, that if you were to place our church somewhere on that scale, between collective and divided and constant and distracted, how would you rate the prayer life of our church? Where would you put it on that scale? My hope and my prayer for us is that over the next decade, we begin to move toward the top of that. That we begin to be known as a church that's known for collective and constant prayer and a culture and in an age of the church that's distracted and divided when it comes to prayer. So again, prayer is the link between the promise and the power. And not just any prayer, a prayer that is collective and constant. The question for us, is this for us, or is this just for the church back then? Is this for us, and is this true for us, or is this just for the church in Acts? When the Spirit shows up with power in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, there's, a lot, there's so much conversation, and I'm in seminary, so I have these conversations all the time. So many commentaries, so many words have been spilled with people trying to decide if Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is just a one-time event that never is to be repeated again, or something that God does again and again and again throughout the history of the church. There's all these debates, there's all these things going into Greek words, just the most amazing amount of writing that you would ever see just on this kind of stuff. And what I would say is that in some ways, what you see in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where the Spirit pours out, in some ways that is unique, because that's the first time that God does this, where he begins to fulfill his promise and pour out his Spirit on the life of the church. But in other ways, I think what happens in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit is poured out, is not unique, and that maybe it is something that can happen again and again and again throughout history, where God pours out his Spirit in powerful ways that are above and beyond the normal, ordinary experience of our lives with the Spirit. That I'm not saying this, is that when I believe that when you, when you're, when you're believe and are baptized, that you receive the gift of the Spirit. 
But I do believe that God throughout history and throughout the history of the church and even in your own life will have unique moments where he pours out his spirit in even stronger ways upon you and where he shows you even even greater ways what's possible through the power of the spirit. And we see this, the reason I think this is we see this happen even in the book of Acts. The church who was gathered together in Acts chapter 2 and experienced the filling of the Spirit, if you keep reading, and you're, we're actually going to get to this passage eventually, but we're going to talk about it today. In Acts chapter 4 verse 31, the same thing happens to the church. It says, and they prayed, and where they were, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. If you've been reading up to this point, you'd be thinking, wait, I think this scene already happened in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. Why is this happening again to the same people in Acts chapter 4, verse 31? Unless prayer is the link between the promise and the power. Unless when the church begins to pray, God maybe is ready to pour out his spirit in remarkable and unexpected ways. In his book on revival, Lloyd-Jones says that this idea again, that what happens is when you see this happen again in Acts chapter 4, he's saying that means that this is the first, that what happens in Acts 2 is just the first in a series of events where God visits his church with extraordinary power. And it's something that we can possibly ask God to do again in our own time. And I believe that despite our cultural moment that's making us distracted and divided and individualistic and having a hard time praying with constancy, I, I said, believe, despite that, I believe that God can call our church to the same kind of prayer life we see in the early church. And I believe that if we begin to move in that direction, God might begin to do some of the things that we see marking the life of the early church. If God can respond to 120 men and women who are praying over 10 days, possibly he can do the same in our own time now. Some of you right now are like, Austin, I'm in. Sign me up. 24-7 prayer. Let's do this, right? Let's, you know, we're going to clear out my first floor of my house. You know, maybe, some, maybe none of you are thinking this, but maybe there's one of you who's like, yes, I'm in. Others of you are like, please find a new church that has, I, I like distracted and divided. That's fine. You know, but again, some of you are like, I, whenever I read this kind of stuff, I'm like, yes, let's do it 24-7. I don't care. I believe God can do this. But the reality is the, the movements that try to start big are often the ones that die the fastest. But what I want us to do is begin to think, how can we start small? And Debbie and the worship team and the leadership of this church has been beginning to imagine um, a, worship, a, a night of worship and prayer. We haven't called it anything yet. We're not sure what we're going to name it. But starting in October, on a Friday night in October, we're actually going to gather together for worship and prayer. And so I invite you to just be listening for that. But that's going to be a way for us to begin to apply this sermon and begin to start small right here in our church. It's going to be on October 12th. And so again, often we want to start huge, but the best way is to start small when we're pursuing constant and collective prayer. I told you I'd come back to that story from the beginning of the sermon. Um, so when we were at Lincoln Christian again, the thing that struck me, that left me, that I left with that year was not this amazing thing that happened at the end of the year with those baptisms and those conversions. What struck me was something that quietly was happening in the background throughout the whole year. That when God gave me this vision for the year, my friend Cody Craig, some of you have met him. He lived here for a little while, um, but he, we went to school together. Um, he said, Austin, we got to start praying for this. And so I said, that's fine. I don't have time for that, but go ahead. And so he started praying for this, and he started gathering people together in prayer, and eventually I started to join him as well. And he started, he just chose this room in the middle of campus. It was a damp, unused room with stains in the carpet and cinder block walls. And he just started squatting there and saying, this is now the prayer room. Um, He declared it as the prayer room, and he started gathering people to pray. And over the course of the next two semesters, you saw people first praying here and there, then you saw people praying every morning and every evening in there. Then over time, you would see people praying every Wednesday night, tons of people gathering together in this tiny room to pray. And then at the end of the year, we saw God come through in powerful ways. 
One of the things that struck me about that prayer is that we had all these names hanging throughout that room, names of people in our friends and family that we wanted to come to know Jesus. And we were praying for those people by names. But every once in a while, someone would walk in and take a name off and say, that person's already come to know Jesus now. And it was in response to our prayer is really what I believe, because prayer is the link between the promise and the power. And the thing that surprised me most is as we were praying for that, there was a professor that came to us who had inspired many of us to pray. And he, to- he told us, he says, I've been praying for 10 years that God would start a fresh movement of prayer among the students here. Students are still talking about what God did in 2011 through 2012. It didn't start with me. It didn't start with Cody. But it started with that person who had been praying 10 years before by themselves, committing, that God, or committing to praying that God would do something like that again here. As I visited that campus, I began to wonder, what's to stop God from doing that in Bellevue Christian? What if over the next decade, God begins to do something like that here? What if God begins to add to us daily, those who are being saved, as we become a church that's praying, believing that prayer is the link between the promise and the power? In many ways, I'm starting to see some of this kind of stuff happen. As I'm seeing discipleship communities say, we really want to study prayer. We really want to start praying together. As I'm seeing individuals come to me and saying, how can we pray more together? Things like that. As we had this idea about this new worship service that we're going to be doing, where we're going to be praying, I've seen God begin to stir the waters for this. And I want to come back and conclude with this quote from um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he says this. He He says, I shall see no hope until individual members of the church are praying for revival. Perhaps meeting in one another's homes, meeting in groups amongst friends, meeting together in churches, meeting anywhere you like, and praying with urgency and concentration for a shedding forth of the power of God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.